Father God, we um, when things happen, when death happens, it is a reminder that this world is not the way it should be, that it's broken. That grief is in this world. And so right now we grieve with Josh, our brother. We grieve with Nikki. We grieve with his family, his sister, the loss of this young life. We pray you would be with Josh and Nikki, the family, all involved as they walk through some really harsh, dark days. That you give them the strength to keep persevering in the midst of it. That you give Josh opportunities in the midst of it uh, to talk about the incredible hope of Jesus and to be an example of what it looks like to grieve with the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray for, uh, we thank you so much for the life of Tammy Watson. We thank you for the example of it to us and what it looked like to persevere through trials, to trust Jesus right to the end. We thank you that we have the assurance that she is with you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start by talking about a holiday. Uh, I'm with a mate, his name's Greg, or I'll call him Greg. Uh, we're walking back from the beach and we're talking about stuff and then eventually we start having a serious conversation. And I remember he's looked at me with this concerned look on his face and he said to me, Kurt, I'm just not sure I'm going to get into heaven. I'm just not sure I'm going to get into heaven. Now, Greg confessed to be a Christian, but he thought to himself, I'm just not sure. Another time I was having coffee with a lady I'll name Tracy. Tracy had decided she no longer thought she was a Christian. Um, she said to me, as I look at my life, I see myself struggling with sin and doubts and all sorts of stuff. She said, I'm just not sure. Let me ask you this morning. Are you sure? Are you sure right this moment that your sins are forgiven? Are you sure that on that final day, Jesus and God will welcome you? Or do you carry around the guilt and the shame for things that you've done that mean you honestly feel a little bit fearful of God? As if, if the resurrected Jesus actually walked into church this morning, would you joyously run to him or would you kind of hide, afraid of him? Do you have assurance that you can come into the presence of a holy God? Well, if you knew this morning, the last seven weeks, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. And uh, we've seen that Hebrews is a sermon to a group of uh, Jewish followers of Jesus who are undergoing tremendous suffering and who, in the midst of their suffering, were struggling to continue following Jesus. Uh, and instead, we're actually turning back 
to the old Jewish practices in the Old Testament of animal sacrifice, of the priesthood and the law. They went back to the old ways of getting assurance that God was for them. See, their suffering led to a lack of assurance. And as I have suffered, and as I have walked alongside other people who have suffered, that can often be the case. See, both Greg and Tracy were struggling and suffering as followers of Jesus. They struggled with sin, they were struggling with poor health, and bad stuff was seen to be happening to them all the time. And they got into this place where it felt like their whole experience of life was screaming at them, God is not for you. And over time, it led them to ask the question, am I really saved? So if today you are like Greg or Tracy or the Hebrews, lacking assurance in the face of suffering, if today you have friends like Greg and Tracy, then Hebrews is an incredible word of assurance. And in some ways, it can, the, the word of assurance can be summed up in one word, and that is Jesus. See, Jesus is God's booming voice which says, I am for you. Jesus is our assurance. And so Hebrews has shown us over and over again, that's the answer. The answer is Jesus. In chapter 1, we're presented with Jesus, who's God's son and king, the ultimate prophet who fully reveals God. In chapter 2, he is God the son, our brother, who took on human flesh and took upon himself our sins so that he is with us in the midst of our temptations and struggles. In chapter 3, he was the one better than Moses who brought about a a, a new way to be right with God. In chapter 4, he's the greater high priest who intercedes for us, God's son, the ultimate picture of prophet, priest, and king, the fulfillment of all this Old Testament was about. But then in chapters 5 and 6, the writer connects Jesus with this random little character from Genesis 14, who's mentioned in Genesis 14, and then again in Psalm 110, named Melchizedek. And then in chapter 7, he fills out that comparison to show us Jesus as the only eternal priest king who can assure us. And so we're going to work through this passage. We've got three points to get through this passage. The first thing the writer's going to tell us is that Melchizedek The enigmatic or mysterious priest king was a prophetic picture of Jesus, the eternal priest king. Have a look with me at chapter 7, verse 1, up on the screen. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met with Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. Now the writer gives a little summary of an account written in 2000 BC in Genesis 14, Abraham, who was chosen by God or he, to start a family who would bring salvation to the world, was blessed by this, edic, this mysterious king called Melchizedek, and who was priest and king. And so Melchizedek comes to Abraham, blesses him. Abraham responds by offering a tithe or 10%. Keep reading. 
He is first by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. And then he is also King of Salem, that is, King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, what is he saying here? It's a little, it's a little bit cryptic. Some have speculated that what he's saying here is that this bloke, Melchizedek, back in Genesis 14, was like a pre-Jesus Jesus. Uh, it was actually God the Son who took on flesh as a, as a king and who met Abraham back in Genesis 14. But uh, notice the writer, he says he resembles the Son of God, not that he is the Son of God, or he was the Son of God. Now, what the writer here is saying is that this picture in Genesis 14 of Melchizedek is like a, a prophetic little picture of Jesus, of Jesus. So just like in the Old Testament, you had the sacrificial system and the sacrifices is a picture of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. So Melchizedek and his priesthood is a picture of Jesus, uh, of Jesus, the king and priest. Uh, so metaphorically, Melchizedek had no beginning or end and didn't know where he came from and when he went. Uh, and so he appeared eternal. Verse 4. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So the writer notices that Melchizedek back there blesses Abraham. Abraham gives him a tenth, indicating that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham but more than that, he notes that the law said that only the Levitical tribe or the family of Levi and the priests that came from that, they are the ones who should receive the tithe. And he's saying, how come this guy back here got the tithe if he's not from the tribe of Levi? Therefore, he must be a priest. But he's a greater priest and he's the one, the one that Abraham um, is blessed by and Abraham gives the tenth to Therefore, Melchizedek's priesthood is superior to Levitical priesthood as well. And so Melchizedek is this picture of an eternal priest-king greater than Levi. Melchizedek was this enigmatic priest-king who was a prophetic picture of Jesus, the eternal priest-king. That's point one. Point two, he keeps going, and he says, Psalm 110 prophesied our need for an eternal priest king. So verse 11. Now if perfection had been, attainable, had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So what he moves from Genesis 14 through to Psalm 110, and he kind of bounces off Psalm 110, where David prophesies that the coming Messiah in the future would be a king after the order of Melchizedek, a, a king, a, like a priest like Melchizedek. And so he says, if the Levitical priests who are before David and their priesthood was sufficient to get rid of sin, then why would David here say you need another sort of priest? You need a Messiah from the order of Melchizedek. So verse 13, for the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah 
And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So comparing Melchizedek and Jesus, he says, Melchizedek didn't come from a priest family, and so Jesus didn't come from a priest family. They never prophesied uh, that, that priests would come from Judah. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So that's a little quote from Psalm 110. He's saying Melchizedek didn't become a priest by being from the tribe of Levi um, because metaphorically speaking, he had no beginning or end. Uh, we, did, we didn't know his family lineage. Now Jesus isn't metaphorically having no beginning or end. He literally has no beginning or end. He is the eternal priest king. Jesus is what Psalm 110 is pointing for to Jesus as the eternal priest king prophesied by David. Okay, so that's point two. Psalm 110 prophesied the Messiah would be the eternal priest king. And then point three, only an eternal priest king can give us assurance of salvation. So verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Okay, so the law, the Levitical priests, the sacrifices could not make a person perfect. Uh, but through the law, through the images, through the pictures, through the prophecies, it pointed forward to one that could, and that is Jesus. And what the law did was it graphically showed us the problem couldn't be fixed by ourselves and we needed God. And through it, we're introduced to a better hope, to Jesus who enables us to be with God. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So again, quoting Psalm 110 again, he says, God didn't simply appoint Jesus for, for a period of time that he swore an oath. He kind of doubled down on his promise, making the Jesus the guarantee or the assurance of a better way to be restored to a right relationship with God, a better covenant. Well, he keeps going, how is it better? Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, that's Jesus, permanently because he continues forever. Levitical priests, what happened? They died, but Jesus lives forever as our great high priest. Verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, one of the critical aspects to know about the problem of sin is that it is an eternal problem. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. It's an eternal problem. And the reason is, is because we are eternal beings in our spirits, although our bodies die. We are eternal beings. We exist eternally. And God is an eternal God. And so when eternal beings reject an eternal God, we have an eternal problem. It doesn't just go away. And so in order to have a solution for an eternal problem, you need an eternal solution. 
And Hebrews 7 is saying Jesus is the eternal solution, isn't he? Because he always intercedes for us before God. Keep reading, verse 26. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. I got you to read Leviticus chapter 1 before, because if you read back in Leviticus, you see see the graphic uh, rituals that God's people had to go through to live in the presence of a holy God. And as you read through Leviticus, you're struck by how imperfect and short-term and kind of stopgap solutions those solutions were. You read about Leviticus 1 and the burnt offering and all the things that needed to happen day and did it day after day, night and day, night and day burnt offerings for the unintentional sins of the people. We read in Leviticus 16 that the priests would only come into the immediate presence of God once a year. And on that day they would have to provide uh, sacrifices for themselves before they could actually step into the presence of God. They would have ritual washings. They wore simple clothing. And then because of the danger of coming into the presence of a holy God, they would tie a rope around their waist before they went into the inner sanctum where God symbolically dwell. And in order to not look upon the face of God, they would fill the, the inner room with smoke so he couldn't be seen. And then taking the blood on a palm branch, they'd sprinkle the blood on the altar. See, they represented the people before God, but they could only do it just. They could only do it because of the mercy of God in that he provided this kind of stopgap solution to prevent him destroying them in their midst. There is nothing about the way the Old Testament system functioned that made you think that's the way we can be perfectly right with God. There's this consistent tension within it saying, does it, does it really work? Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and you see how we were made to live, it says that we were walking in the garden, God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. See, we were actually made to live in the direct presence of God and walk with him. And the book of Leviticus shows us that, well, the closest we could get was filled smoke room, sprinkling on the blood of the altar. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the eternal solution to an eternal problem. He is the perfect priest in that he doesn't have to provide sacrifices for his own sin and that he's sinless. He is the perfect sacrifice and he takes upon himself the sins of the whole world, enabling him to eternally intercede, step between us and God to represent us before God, dying as a sacrifice to take the punishment for our sins, saying to God, may my eternal perfection be credited to them.
You see, Hebrews 7 is saying, only an eternal priest king can give us assurance of salvation, can give us the assurance we are saved. Now, for some here today, the reason you do not have assurance you are saved is because you're not. I don't mean you're not a good person, but you've never accepted Jesus' perfection to be yours. You've never accepted his death and your sin. You've never invited Jesus to be your king and priest and saviour. If that is you today and you've never accepted that, then today is the day to hear this word. Today is the day to have your eternal problem fixed. Today is the day to have full assurance that when you die, the next time you open your eyes, you will see the glorious Lord Jesus, the God of the universe who loves you so desperately he sent Jesus to die for you. have assurance both in this life and the one to come. If that's you today, listen to this word. Listen. God's crying out to you. But for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, come back to the original question. Are you sure? After my mate Greg said he was not sure he was going to go to heaven, he then said to me, my wife tells me I shouldn't worry because I'm, I'm a good bloke. And so I said to him, Greg, you're, you're a nice guy. You are a nice guy. But your assurance is never going to be found in your goodness. It's not about you and your perfection It's about Jesus and his perfection. Keep your eyes on him. As I sat across the table from Tracy, and she said to me, she just thought she was too broken to be a Christian. I said to her, you're right. But it's not about you and your perfection. It's about Jesus and his perfection. Keep your eyes on him. You see, sometimes God's apparent absence when we suffer can really really damage our assurance. And our instinct when we lack assurance is to curve in on ourselves and look harder at ourselves for evidence. See, that was the temptation of the Hebrews. They were tempted, what? To go back to the Jewish rituals and practices to get the assurance they were right with God. But friends, assurance of salvation never starts by looking at yourself. It comes through keeping your eyes on him and his perfection, because as you look at him and his perfection, that perfection, through trust in him, is yours.
You are united by faith with him. So what's true of him is true of him, you. So tell me, are you sure you'll be saved? Hebrews provides us assurance with one word. That's Jesus. An eternal solution for an eternal problem. Assurance is not about you and your perfection. It's about Jesus and his perfection. Keep your eyes on him. Keep your eyes on him. Paul's going to come and pray for us right now. Dear friends, my name is Paul, and uh, I'll invite you to pray along with me quietly as I lead us together in prayer.